The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, so we're picking up in Joshua 7 this evening. Um, If you want to just give one little finger over to Joshua 6, we're going to read that passage just for a little bit of context. I'm really excited to share the word with you guys tonight. And um, it's going to start off, just a heads up, (laughs) it's going to start off pretty heavy. We're talking about a sin that laid waste to people and to families, and it's really, really heavy. Just like the bad news of the gospel, if I'm honest. It's heavy. And we have to grasp the bad news first because it's what makes the good news so good. If we don't grasp the bad news, if we don't grasp the weight and gravity of the bad news, then the good news is only just so. Okay, so just a heads up. Joshua chapter 7. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, thank you so much for joining us. You're not alone in that. I remember having one of those Bibles with all the tabs on it and really needing the table of contents and those tabs to find my way around. Joshua is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the sixth book of the Bible after the all-important Pentateuch, which is where the law of, uh, of Moses and the other amazing things come from. So it's a sixth book. And uh, yeah, let's get into it. We pick up in Joshua 7 just on the heels of something miraculous, something amazing, something supernatural, something powerful, and something, I'll be honest, totally expected. Here's what I mean. It wasn't just impressive, if you listen to uh, the message where the walls around Jericho fell, it wasn't just impressive that the Lord's army overtook Jericho, because they didn't do so with military might, with prowess and with execution of some brilliant military strategy, they did so by faith. And what's most shocking, most surprising to me is that Jericho knew it was coming. It wasn't the fact that they brought down the walls with trumpets and some weird yelling. It was the fact that they did it supernaturally and that Jericho knew that it was coming. This is what the woman, the prostitute who housed the spies from Israel This is what she said in Joshua chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. The city, oh, sorry, Joshua 2, verse 10. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. She's a Canaanite. She shouldn't have spoken those words. And yet she knew, just like every other person in Jericho, that the Lord was coming and that he was going to reign and to rule. And so sure enough, The Lord's armies march around Jericho for six days and on the seventh, seven times. And on the final one, the walls come down with a trumpet blast and with a shout. But just before that moment, just before the walls come tumbling down, the armies are gathered together because there's one simple request that the Lord wants to make to his people. And this is it. This is Joshua chapter six, (laughs) verse 17. The city shall be under the ban. It and all that is in it belongs to the Lord. 
Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messenger whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban, so that you do not covet them, and take some of the things under the ban, and make the camp of Israel accursed, and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. It's interesting to note that in the Hebrew, there's a there's a difference in the words that are used. Everything under the ban is devoted to the Lord. It's, it's harem. It's devoted to the Lord. But the things that are holy to the Lord are set apart. They're sacred, which is what this word um, ultimately translates to. They're kadesh. They're sacred. And notice the characteristic of the holiness of these objects. There's some of us sitting here that really need to hear this part, and it's going to come up again later, but we're going to lead off with it. The things that are called holy aren't called this because they earned it, because of what they are, but because, my friends, the Lord chooses them to be so. He says, those things, those things are holy. We're going to come back to that later. So then we pick up in Joshua chapter 7. I'm just going to throw that there. Joshua 7, verse 1. Here's what it says. We're going to read through verse five. But, this is not a good but. (laughs) There's those moments in scripture where there's like, but God. This is not one of those, unfortunately. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. Those things that were harem and unfortunately also Kadesh. For Achan, which I'm going to pronounce his name Achan, even though I think it should be pronounced Achan, just because, you know, spit and stuff. For Achan, the, su- the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua, oh man, it just leaves us right there. And then this happens. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Bethaven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. The men went up and spied out I. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or 3,000 men go up and attack I. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men up there from, from the people. And they fled before the men of I. And the men of I killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shibarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Did you pick up on what Rahab said about the Canaanites? She said, we heard about your God, how they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, what they did to the kings, and our Canaanite, unbelieving, non-familiar with God hearts, melted and became as water at the news of your God. And yet here we find the Israelite people in light of what happens to them at I, the same thing, their hearts melt and become as water. There's this struggle through this chapter of the Israelite heart versus the Canaanite heart. We're gonna play it out a little bit, but this is important to just pause on for just a second because the heart of the Canaanite is the one that should melt at the name of Yahweh, is the one that should fear what's coming when Yahweh sets his face against them. And yet, when the Israelites who have seen him work, who've seen him move, who've seen him love on them and lead them through the wilderness, they're the ones. (laughs) 
their hearts melt. It's, it's tough. It's tough to be in that position of defeat. And yet, they forget. They forget who their God is. They forget what he did to get them there. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 20 because I'm going to play out what happens with Achan or Achan. And then we're going to revisit Joshua because two dynamics are at play here. There's Achan's sin in stealing from the Kadesh things, stealing from the holy, the sacred. And then there's Joshua's foolishness. So beginning with Achan, here's what happens in verse 20. We get kind of insight to the thought process that he went through and how this developed within him. Verse 20 says this, and Achan answered Joshua, truly I've sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. Take yourself there to Jericho. The walls have just fallen. They just had that one request issued to them right before the trumpet blast. The walls come crashing down and then they walk through Jericho, not to plunder it, but rather to destroy it. It's interesting to note that in archaeological finds, I which is kind of a little bit of a spoiler. I and Jericho are the only two in the area that aren't just destroyed, but they're burned to the ground. They're totally dismantled. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted and took, and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. The description of Achan's sin is haunting, not because it's haunting to see into his mind, but I think it's haunting to see into ours. It's haunting to see the way that sin plays out, and it's reminiscent of what happens when the first sin ever enters into humanity in Genesis 3. Listen, listen to the similarities in this. Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and ate it. And then later on, this passage says that when the Lord came calling, what did they do? They hid. They saw. They coveted. They took. And then they hid. This is the progress of sin. This is the process of sin as well. This is a self-destructive sin that threatens to steal our peace and joy and convince us that the only thing that we deserve is condemnation and fear before a holy God. And you know what? <laughs> I told you this was going to be bad. It's right. Because if sin reigns and sin is the Lord over your life, then you, my friend, are just like me, condemned. This is the truth about sin, and this is the bad news. <laughs> this is the bad news of the gospel. Here's what it says in James 1. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, which is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin suffocates. Suffocating sin is actually the name of this message. And there's a turn here, so I don't want you to miss that. But sin suffocates. It makes the heart feeble with shallow pleasures, 
stealing the deep, spirit-born, flesh-denying gifts of peace and joy until all that is left is riddled with fear and characterized how? By hiding. The end of sin is man fully condemned. That's where sin leads to. That's what sin wants. It's for you and I to just remain with that simple truth (laughs) that if we're lost in sin, so too are we lost to condemnation. The end of sin is man fully condemned. It's so heavy. It's so difficult. And it's so true. For those of you that are early church scholars or, or something like that, you'll also hear some similarities between this because this is actually a dark echo of that pivot that I was talking about earlier. This is a a dark echo of a quote that I stole from St. Irenaeus. And here's that quote. The glory of God, however, is man fully alive. Is man fully alive. This is your breath back. When sin suffocates, the stranglehold that it holds upon us, not just our, our minds, not just how it enters in through our eyes, not how it just it shapes our hearts and we begin to covet, how it moves and reaches out through our very hands so that we take and then encapsulates our, our souls and pushes us into fear and into hiding. What does the gospel do? <laughs> it shines light into that dark place. It shines light into that dark place and then it slowly but surely peels back those gnarled fingers of sin so that in freedom we might live and in the light of the Lord we might walk. This is, this is the gospel that you are lost in sin without Jesus. But because of Jesus, sin has no right over you if you would do just one thing. Like Rahab, call upon the Lord as your savior. It's so simple and it's so true. It's so freeing. It's soul changing. It's eye illuminating. And it's it's heart replacing. There's this amazing, amazing passage in the book of Ezekiel where the Lord promises to do something with our hearts, with their hearts. And he says, your heart is calloused so callous that it's hard, so hard that it's like stone. And so what I'm going to do, although it may be painful, although it may may be a hard wrought process, I'm going to take that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, a heart of flesh that feels what the Lord feels, a heart of flesh that believes what the Lord says is true, is true. He's saying, come. He's saying, come and believe that what I want for you, (laughs) what I want for you is for you to be fully alive. And what sin wants is the opposite. And so you glorify him in heaven and you embrace the life that you were designed to live when you walk with him, when you walk with him. Achan at the end of this chapter is given an opportunity to repent and to respond. We're gonna extend to you an opportunity to do the same when we take communion later on that will talk about what it means to repent, what it means to respond. And unlike Achan, there will be someone to step in the way. That when you come forward, (laughs) when you come forward as called out by sin, 
basically the process, they go through each tribe, they go through each family, and then they land on the men of each family, and they say, who sinned? And then Achan is singled out among all of the people. Can you imagine? This moment is insane. He steps out and he says, I've sinned. We stand with him. Why? Because we too have sinned. Yet, unlike Achan, when we step out and say we have sinned, Jesus says, nope, that's mine. No, that's mine. So I'll take the the judgment. I'll take the condemnation that should be yours just like Achan's. And yet instead, I'll receive it myself and I'll nail it to the cross and I'll defeat it. I'll peel back those fingers so that they can't reach for you anymore. This This is Achan's sin. But this is Jesus's gospel, and it's for you tonight. That's Joshua, or that's Achan. Now we'll take a look at Joshua. Not knowing what has happened, what, what's lying beneath the earth in Achan's house. Joshua doesn't sin when he moves forward, but instead he does act according to foolishness. And so there, the two dynamics at play within this chapter are sinning against holiness and then conducting yourself with wisdom versus foolishness. And unfortunately, the way that Joshua leads this time is foolish. And so here's the first lesson. When you conduct yourself with wisdom, here's the dynamic that happens. Wisdom suffocates sin and promotes holiness, while foolishness mitigates sin Oh, while foolishness mitigates holiness and exacerbates sin. Think about the dynamic at play. If Joshua instead had attended to the Lord, sought him, been revealed to him what was lying in Achan's tent, instead of just moving forward without ever talking to the Lord, the consequences would have been different. 36 men died Real men. These aren't fake stories about some guys that maybe lived. These are real. These are real people. 36 died because of sin, and then the sin was exacerbated with the foolishness. Sin is what brings on the sickness, but foolishness is what keeps you from seeing the doctor. It's what keeps you in sin's control. Wisdom, however, fights against the control of sin. It it exacerbated by foolishness. Wisdom does the opposite. And so now we know that both of those things are at play. We're going to take a look at where holiness comes from. So holiness comes from unity with God. And wisdom comes from intimacy with God. Where does holiness come from in the beginning of this chapter? Where God says the things that are holy. He says, I choose those things. And so they're united to him by his will. Come on, there's somebody here that needs to hear that. I choose that. I choose that thing in this chapter. But what God does all over scripture is choose people. And when he chooses those people, they are made holy. There are people that have been chosen that are here tonight that have been made holy, not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it. And it's not because of who you are, but it's because God chose you. He says, you are mine. You're my son. You're my daughter. And so if you're to be united to him, then you'll be made holy. You'll be made holy. With Joshua, he doesn't enter into an intimate moment with God. And so as a result, he doesn't experience wisdom. 
He doesn't receive wisdom from the Lord, which is so interesting because if you look back at what God had been doing, the entire book of Joshua, and even leading up to it, there are some moments there that I want to point out. Joshua 5, which I'm just, I got to be honest, I'm really glad I didn't uh, get asked to preach on Joshua 5. It's the one on circumcision. Anyway, Daniel did a great job on that one. Bless you, brother. (laughs) Joshua 5, why does God have them circumcise themselves? Because he wants to call them back to something. He wants to remind them of something. The covenant that he gave Abraham, where he would promise the people through Abraham to be a nation and to have a land. So in Joshua 5, that's what God's doing. He's saying, hey, remember, I promised you something. I promised that you would be a people, and you are. I promised that you have a land, and it is upon that land that you stand. It's not fully realized at this particular moment, but the promise nevertheless can, cannot be denied. Joshua 3, they cross the Jordan River on dry ground. That reminds Rahab of something. It should remind us of something too. I saved you from Egypt. I saved you from slavery. I saved you from bondage. I freed you. I promised to do so actually. And so in promising to do so, I kept kept my promise. And then finally, just before they go into Jericho, there's an angelic visitation. The captain of the Lord's army stands before them. There's this local recent promise that the angel gives. Do this and you'll succeed. Do this and you'll be victorious. Do this and the Lord will be with you. There's these three moments so recent in in Joshua's adventure with Israel where God reminds them of something. He reminds them that he can be trusted. Why? He can be trusted to keep his promises because our God is a God of kept promises. Our God is the God of kept promises. And there are those of you that have experienced this to be true, that when he promises something, he comes through. And so I love that this series is walking in the promises, not just because it's going to happen, not just because it's true, but because God gives us something to look back to. He's saying, you know that this is my character. You know that this is true about me because I've kept my promises. I promise to save my people. I promise to create a people. I promise to give them the land. I promise to bring a Messiah. And because of all of those promises that I've kept to you, you know that when I make a promise to you, that you confess with your mouth that I am Lord and believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, that you will be saved. You will be. You know that he's going to keep that promise. Why? Because he's a God of kept promises. He's a God of kept promises. And so while wisdom comes from intimacy with God, we know that wisdom, there's a necessary ingredient. And that necessary ingredient is humility, is humility. By any standard, Joshua's men should have overtaken I. They should have. It was a small town, especially in comparison to Jericho. So small, seemingly insignificant in light of what they had to do before them, that they just moved forward. Certainly they presumed that victory would be theirs. And what they failed to do beforehand was to just humble themselves before the Lord and ask, Lord, what is there that you might do? What is there that you might tell us? 
What is there that you might illumine to our dark minds? When the captain doesn't show up, that could have been a reason for them to pause and wonder, wait, maybe there's something going on. Maybe there's, maybe there's something we're missing because God hasn't given us the green light. He hasn't sent us that captain, you know, the captain beforehand who said, I'm neither with you nor against you because I'm for God. So whenever you're with God, I'll be with you. They fail to humble themselves. And unfortunately, they don't heed this small lesson, that humility before God is the posture of victory. Humility before God is the posture of victory and a balm of defeat. See, after the men come back and they're defeated, the hearts of the people are melted like the Canaanites were. Then Joshua goes with a humble and contrite spirit. Lord, what is it? Did you bring us? It would have been better for us to stay on the other side of the Jordan because now we're, we're losing. Now we're defeated. And so he comes to the Lord humble. And the Lord meets him there with a balm, with a salve, something to heal his wounds, something to bind him up, something to restore him. And this is the right posture for defeat. This is the right posture. But notice that if he would have gone beforehand and humbled himself before the Lord, that he would have actually been presented from the very get-go with victory. It's always, always the right posture before the Lord to be humble. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes <laughs> the Lord's going to call us into things that just feel like defeat. By worldly standards, it's going to feel like a waste of time, a waste of moments, maybe even at the end of our days, a waste of a life. Certainly many people would have said that about Paul. He had so much going for him. <laughs> he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a rabbi of rabbis. He was the top of his class. He was well-known throughout the nation. He studied under maybe the famous, the most famous rabbi who ever walked the earth, Gamaliel, maybe outside of Jesus. That he had everything going for him. And what did he throw it away for? For a ragtag group of nobodies, not even scholars? Not even other rabbis that would stand next to him. The only other one that we hear about is Nicodemus, and he's hidden in the darkness. Maybe he believes, maybe he doesn't, but we know that he's not standing next to this guy. He gets thrown in prison. He writes a few letters, and then he dies. What a waste of a life. If you think that the days that we get on earth are all that matters. My brothers and sisters, there will be times where we're called into the same. Where the, by the worldly standards, we're called to fail. We're called to defeat. Yet we can, knowing that defeat on this earth, even if the world hates us, we know that it hated him before. And so when we participate in the Lord's sufferings, we, like Paul says, fill up. This is such an interesting passage. We fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. What could possibly be lacking in Christ's afflictions? He suffered once for all. He was the perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. He was nailed to the cross. What could have possibly been lacking in his afflictions? And Paul says, well, you are his body, aren't you? And so if his body is going to suffer and he knows that that's going to happen, and he's okay with it. Then we're participating in his sufferings. We're filling up what is lacking. And this is the same guy. This is the same guy that writes Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. 
which simply talk about the emptying, the emptying of Jesus, where he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be held onto, but relinquished it. He gave it up, took on flesh like a man, the flesh of a man, and then died the death, not of a righteous man, not of a royal, but died the death of a sinner. He died Achan's death. He died Achan's death for you and me. And so we know that as we partner with him and we follow in his footsteps, humility is the right posture. It's always the posture of victory because it's the posture that Jesus took and it's the posture that he invites us into. Humble yourself before his father in heaven and be declared righteous, be chosen as holy and then walk in intimacy with him and taste of that wisdom, taste of that wisdom. You see, biblical humility isn't just a lower perspective of yourself or even a higher perspective of God. It's a right perspective of yourself and God. This is the kind of humility that leads to supernatural godly wisdom. Why? <laughs> because it's the only time when we commune with the Lord as a people in desperate need of him that we gain access to a supernatural and eternal mindset. What does that mean? It means that until you do, you'll run headlong like Joshua into a battle that you should win, possibly even the thinking that God has given it to you and yet not know that you're doing exactly the opposite, that you're running against God, not even necessarily because of your own sin, but certainly because of your own foolishness. But in that moment, as the Lord hands you defeat and redirects you back to him and you prostrate yourself before him in humility, what sweet defeat it would be knowing that now I'm at the foot of my savior, being redirected back into holiness, redirected back into wisdom. And it's these two questions, halted and humble, that you should ask in those moments and maybe even tonight. My savior and my God, where would you have me go? And what would you have me do? Imagine the power of those two questions before they went into battle. Lord, what would you have us do? Where would you have us go? And the Lord would bring to them at that moment, there's sin in the camp. I'm against you until this is rooted out and it's dealt with. There's sin in the camp. Don't go. Because until you do, I won't let you succeed. Until you do, failure is your only option. So come back to me. Come back to me and humble yourself before me. Walk in victory. Walk in victory. And be restored from defeat. Be restored. And then let me extend to you one final thought. An invitation as we close. There's one thing that's repeated in this entire chapter. And it's an odd thing. It's, it's Achan's genealogy. It says that he's the son of this person, the son of this person, the son of this person, of this particular tribe. And this particular tribe bears significance to us. It's the tribe of Judah, which is foretold that something significant, someone significant is going to come from the tribe of Judah, a lion. That there would be the lion of the tribe of Judah that would come. It would be a promised Messiah, a conquering king that would first come as a suffering servant, as we are foretold in the book of Isaiah. But this tribe of Judah, nevertheless, would bear a savior, bear a Messiah. And it's interesting that this is repeated twice in this chapter. Because you know who else, just before this, 
is also in that same tribe, Rahab. Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament, begins with the genealogy of Jesus. And if you run the numbers back, if you run the names back, Achan's name doesn't come up. But you know whose does? Rahab. Rahab. The Canaanite. (laughs) Not the Israelite. Not the one who walked through the fallen wall, trampled over the rubble in Jericho, the one who was saved from Jericho, the one who just before this whole thing went down said, your God is the God of heaven and earth. And then as Achan walks through, he proclaims the exact opposite. Yeah, it was great that God did this, but these things are shiny and pretty and I want them for myself. And when Rahab... Rahab says, your God is heaven and earth. There's a switch. There's an identity change. And you know what happens? She's brought in to the family of God, not because of who she is, not because of what she did, but because of the faith that she, pro- that she professed. That because of her faith, she's his family. Because of her faith, she appears in Matthew. Because of her faith, she's in the holy line. She's in the royal line. (laughs) Won't you let that be said of you tonight? Because of your faith, you're in his family. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.